Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAGAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations at Home program. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Before we are joined by our guests today, I want to let you know that the sag After Foundation is a nonprofit organization that relies entirely on donations to provide emergency assistance and free educational programs to sag After artists. This conversation is made possible thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Over the last year, the foundation has given over $6.5 million in COVID relief to more than 7,000 performers. If you are a sag After artist and need help, please ask. And if you can help, please give. Information can be found in the description of this video. Thank you so much for your support. Now, without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce Gabrielle Carteris. Welcome, Gabrielle. How are you? How's your life been the last year and a half, I guess? <laughs> That's all? Year and a half? I'm good. How are you? It's been quite, uh, for, as for everybody else, right? It's been a challenging, maybe some places, secret blessings and mm-hmm. uh but challenging and difficult time for, I think for I, I, what everybody else is going through is exactly where I'm at as well. Right. And artists specifically, I think I've had unique journeys in trying to maintain their careers, trying to keep your skills sharp, trying to get jobs. And we'll get to that. And I want to hear what you're doing now, because I know you're in New York and you said you're working, which is so exciting. Mm-hmm. But I want to go way, way, way back. I want to go to the very beginning. And I want to talk about being born in Arizona. Oh, my God. <laughs> We're, I'm telling you, we're, this is a deep dive. So how did you come deep to be born dive. in Arizona? <laughs> <laughs> My parents, uh, you know, they, uh, that's where they moved. And I, uh, my brother, I'm a twin. And yeah. so... Uh, I don't think a lot of people knew that. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm a twin um, and very close to my brother. But we, uh, that's where we were born. And then um, later on, we moved to Northern California. And that's where I grew up and then later came to New York and ended up in L.A. Okay. But I'm going to go back to the California part first. Okay. So tell me when and how you were first introduced to the arts. Was it through your mom? Was it through school? When did you kind of have an inkling that you were interested in performing? You know what? I always loved to perform, even when I was really, really little. So I used to... uh, I loved being, I remember being in my first play when I was in uh, kindergarten. Oh my. And I know. <laughs> That's early. <laughs> it was early, right? Um, actually, it was first grade and I was, uh, it was, um, it was the, it's called the Christmas tree and I was the Christmas tree. Oh, I remember the Christmas tree. Sure. So, you got to be I, the big part. <laughs> I remember sitting there and everybody singing and, you know, going around me. And, and I remember crying. I think this was so exciting. It was just so oh. fun. But I, um, my grandfather uh, was a businessman, but he loved poetry. And so he used to, you know, read to us and I don't know, just tell stories and my family did. And I, when I was little, I would write plays with my friends in the neighborhood and we would oh. do shows uh, in our backyard. My friend had 
uh, paint cans where we put a big board on top. And I used to pretend to be uh, Barbara Streisand. My friend was Liza Minnelli. And we would sing, perform for our parents. We'd bring all the neighbors. And then we would write plays. And then we'd have them come see us. And we would oh. I just... Something. And I was a dancer and I, uh, I did ballet for, uh, I gosh, almost uh, maybe 10 years. I was, wow. uh, I had a scholarship at San Francisco Ballet and Luke wow. Christensen, who was the, um, the, the director at the time had said to me, how tall is your mother? How tall is your father? And I'm, you know, just barely five one. So petite, yes. <laughs> and I knew that that was not, those weren't good questions. Even though I did get a scholarship there, that was not going to be at that time. Uh, petite dancers were not in. You had to be at least by four. Okay. And then um, I did mime and I traveled through Europe. I met a, a, a group when I was a teenager and they asked me to travel with them. And I, I did. And I was able to see uh, lots of uh, different places in, throughout Europe. Mm-hmm. And that was exciting. And, and that then- was in high school? That was in high school. Okay, let's go back a little bit. Mime. Let's talk about mime. <laughs> I know, right? How do, people yeah, hate mimes. I have to tell you, it it's was. Also, so, it's like clowns. People are afraid of them a little. I know. Right. Right. Um, I actually did my miming, uh, and it was through high school that what I was doing it, and I, um, I actually used it for political purposes. So I created shows that were messages. I taught my friends. I created a, a, a community of performers and um, and we would actually perform at events to yeah. go and we weren't old enough to vote. So it was a way for us to help. Like there was a proposition we were trying to pass and wow. there were different. Um, I was an activist even then. Right. I, I don't <laughs> right. Think I realize that so much later. But right. right. Um, so I did that. I was a part of a mind book and then on how to you know do that. And then. Um, when I went to you know college, that was not the thing to talk about, so I didn't talk about mine. <laughs> um, for fear of being outcast in school, that's right? right. Immediately, because anybody, my God, you did mine. Oh my God! But, but um, let me. And I was also in high school. I was. Oh, at, sorry. I just wanted to learn more about mine for a second because okay. I think people don't really understand that it is an actual art form. It is. So, so, so tell us what what is it beyond you know the the weird guy in the in the street right. doing this to us, right? What, where, what are the roots of mime and what did you learn in that craft? What I learned, what is really magical about mime, particularly as I traveled through, throughout Europe, um, it was an incredible way to communicate because it's, it's a language that's done through physical, a physical world that we all live in. Mm. So there's no, um, it was probably something that connected more uh, people together than language does, you know, verbal language. And so it was when I was in Czechoslovakia and Prague and there was uh, these children who were, um, a lot of them were, I don't want to say they were homeless, but they were really struggling. Mm -hmm. And they were so intrigued with us and they followed us and we would teach them. So it became uh, a social tool as well. And it, it really was a wonderful experience. And for me, mine wasn't Yes, there are movements and ways to move your body so it looks a certain way, but it really did become a vehicle for me to also communicate my my beliefs and storytelling that we could tell through our, you know, little performances were actually, um, they could actually be in some ways much more, particularly at that time, um, 
more expressive than, than language because there were restrictions, unacceptable things that you didn't want to talk about. But when you did it in a physical kind of communication, it was not only universal, but more accepted. And it allowed for something, it's not as jarring in some ways. It allowed people to come along with us. And it was a really, I had friends who never had an interest in doing it. And when I brought them together to do it, it was a great community building for us also. I mean, and then, you know, we were in the news, there were people came, we raised money to, for the, for the things that we were too young to, um, uh, get, you know, get involved with in terms of, like, like I said, with voting, where we were too young to do that, it gave us a voice. It gave us a platform to be seen and heard. And that was, um, that was wonderful. I mean, I loved it. I had a great time. I, you know, people laugh about it, so I don't <laughs> talk about it, but it did. It helped me, I, you know, to be so young and to travel throughout Europe is, wow. was an incredible experience. It was a great way to meet people and to see cultures and there was no boundary to it. I loved it. I love that. And, and the idea that you were given a voice without saying a word, that's actually a very right. beautiful concept. And the idea that you could communicate with people who didn't speak your language. The, like you said, the universality of um, silent performance and hand motions and facial expressions. It's, it's so great. And to think of those indigent kids you saw thinking, oh, oh there's, there's a world beyond this difficulty, right? Well, and it was really joyful for them, right? So there, there would have been a, we could have been a curiosity. We became more than that. We became a part of them and they were a part of us. And it was, you know, I think that's the beautiful thing about sports. I think it's the beautiful thing about dance. It's the beautiful thing about music, the universality of that thing that touches all of us, no matter where we're from. We do share certain, certain common out, uh, common, uh, experiences. There are things that we that transcend just our culture. And so I don't know. I think it was a really it was really fun. And I actually should talk about it more now that I see <laughs> I am personally great. quite intrigued by this. So I think I think mime deserves revisiting at this That's point great. in our in our lives. And I did want to talk about more communication, right? We do. And we need more communication that isn't aggressive and, you know, divisive as we've seen a lot of in the last year. But I want to know more about ballet because I know that can be extremely grueling, mm. extremely hard on young women specifically, especially in terms of body sensibility, how hard you are on yourself, right? The rigor of the dance. What did you learn from ballet that was good, but also what, what were you kind of grateful that you didn't have to deal with anymore when you stopped doing it? Well, uh, for me, ballet was um, a stabilizer in my life. I grew up in a single home. There was a lot of, uh, I was a latchkey kid. Mm. And so um, it did create a, found, a strong foundation of purpose for me and also incredible discipline. So um, I, I always have talked even to my girls, but to, um, to youth, when I speak out, find something to be committed to, even if it's not going to be the thing you do as an adult, it actually can inform your future, right? So mm. dance isn't, I didn't become a dancer, but it, the work and the discipline actually informed so much of my life. How do I work with people? How do I take care of myself? How do I, how do I go beyond even the pain? Like I used to, when I first got on point and how my, you know, my feet bled through my shoes, right? The first time you go to do it, but you get up again and again. Now, do we want to abuse our bodies? No, but on the other side of it, it taught me that there's, it really uh, heightened my ability to, sustain and to 
to persevere and to to listen because to dance to music is you know I used to feel like the music flows through your body the dance is an extension of the music and the music an extension of your body so it was very freeing and it was a great way to learn to communicate as well Hmm. Um, even though that's not a vocal communication our bodies tell us a lot and being a dancer actually allowed me to read people's bodies better read Hmm. where they're coming from that my empathy um, for people I think there's there's vocal empathy. You can hear when somebody's sad or they're feeling things, but there's also a physical empathy that um, I do believe that dance helped me with as well. Wow. And, and just hearing you talk about that, I imagine it also helped with taking direction. Yes. If, if now working with directors as an actor, if your teacher's telling you to make an adjustment, move your leg a little bit this way, stand up a certain, to be able to hear direction and feedback and then apply it in right. the moment to making an adjustment. I have to imagine as an actor, that's been critical. I, I really think everything we do informs our work, right? I, and, and even as an actor, I, um, I often also talk to youth because I speak at different uh, places. And I, when I go to university or to younger uh, children, I say, it's really important that um, there's something about when we're working to find something to be committed to, even if it's not going to be your future. I said, but really commit to it because what you leave behind afterwards will come with you and help to inform the next thing that you do. So um, I don't know. I think it's, I, I think everything that I've ever done, you know, I always wanted to be able to be an actor, but there's so many things I did that had nothing to do with acting. And yet I really feel that it helped with my acting. So, hmm. and it That's, still does. I love that. And, and I, when I meet actors who've had, what I'll call fuller lives beyond just acting, I can always tell. I can always tell when they've gone to college. I can always tell when they've traveled or lived elsewhere or done other jobs because it feels like they have, not that they're more talented, but there's just more of a full spectrum of experiences in their work. And I'm so sure I think you that's have for that. everything though. I think that's, I think so. you know, mm-hmm. I think that the more we do as human beings, instead of just being linear, right. um, I think it, it reflects in everything we do. Whatever decision doesn't acting is just one microcosm of so many things like that. But I do think a well-rounded person um, always brings something more to the table than uh, a linear person. Right. It's like Daniel Day-Lewis cobbling shoes in his free time, right? In between jobs. <laughs> so I'd love to know, what was your journey to college? You went to Sarah Lawrence. Is that I, right? did. I did. And what were you planning to study when you got there? And did college become what you expected it to? And if not, in what ways? So I was at ACT Young Conservatory, which is in San Francisco, prior to my going to college. And I had a teacher there who pulled me and two other uh, students aside to say, if you wanted to, you know, if we wanted to continue acting, we should really look at going to New York. And so I was getting ready for college and I thought, okay, I'll look for a school that specializes in theater. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that time, we didn't have the internet because I'm that old. (laughs) Yeah, there was a book on uh, colleges in the East Coast. And, um, and it was, you know, it it was written by students experientially about the schools. And um, the one I read, I hate taking tests. I loathe, I I would rather write a million papers, read a thousand books, but the testing thing. So Sarah Lawrence is a school that didn't require testing. And it was known for its, uh, for its performing arts. Mm. 
And so it was the only school I ended up applying to. And I um, was fortunate enough because I didn't know that that was maybe not the smartest thing to do. But uh, <laughs> it was very a big risk on your that was a big risk. But I told them when I went to interview there, they said, you know, what other schools have you uh, um, applied to? And I said, well, no, this is the only school. And they said, well, what if you don't get in? And I said, well, if you don't take me this year, you'll take me next year. I really had no idea what I was saying. That's you know? a good answer, though, because you're already telling them either way I'm coming here. Right? That's right. Either way, this is the school for me. And it really was the school for me. So there were two things. They don't have minors or majors at Sarah Lawrence. They have concentrations. But uh, the two concentrations for me that were my major focus were uh was theater and was uh, psychology. Hmm. And so um, I really uh, immersed myself in both. I, when I was younger, had um, translated for the deaf. I had, there had been a school that opened up um, where I was as a young child that was a multi-educational program for kids who are not just deaf but blind and multiple uh, disabilities. And so I worked with those kids and they taught me to sign. And so when I went to Sarah Lawrence, I studied linguistics, you know, language development in youth. And on the other side of that, I was doing theater and I, um, so I was pretty busy and I, I loved it. The experience, I have to tell you though, it's a small school and now it's much more expansive. I've gone there to speak at the school now and it was an incredible, I, I have lifelong friends lifelong experience but it's a small school and my girls one of them went to uh was just finishing up in um boulder colorado and that was an amazing school i was like if i had had i just i didn't our my world wasn't as big to know the opportunities i just went for where i you know where i was going and i didn't i didn't know what was outside of that but it was a great choice for me and it ended up you know when i graduated from uh sarah lawrence i lived in new york and i started you know, working in the business. And I, you know, became an actor. And And what were you hoping your career would look like? Because I know a lot of soaps filmed in New York at that time, but obviously a lot of stage work. But you really are very removed from Hollywood there. People who stay in New York for their careers have wildly different professional experiences than people who move to LA for pilot season. Right. You know, what what was your experience like? Well, first of all, during the time I was living in New York, and that there was only one or two TV shows. There was a, a Kate and Alley, and there was right. a I forget the uh, other uh, equal. I forget there was only two shows that existed here. Right, so not that many shot there. Yeah, but nowadays, actually, the similarities Hollywood is no longer right. I right. mean, I know people think of it, but it's really not. It's, it's everywhere now. It is. We're a movable feast. I've always said this, and it's clear we follow that. You know, our industry follows the tax incentives. Um, and our members, because of the mobility of our culture and the way things work now and they shoot everywhere, that's not the center of the universe. There's a large population of performers there. But here in New York, it's not only New York. Georgia's another place. Huge. I mean, mm-hmm. Chicago, we are seeing work expanding all over the country. So it's very different now than it was then. If you were, when I was in New York at that time, to be in New York meant to do stage. And to be in L.A. meant to do TV and film. And so I knew when I was here and I was doing a lot of regional theater and I was traveling and really working. I had been at Williamstown. Um, I really had the New York experience. And I, you know, living in people's homes, they put you up in regional theaters. You travel the country. And I was with all the 
the ladies who are much older who, because they traveled so much doing regional theater that they traveled with their cats. They never got married. I swear <laughs> to God, they were, it's like, you never, you know, they'd be in their seventies. You have like, you know, are you married? Oh no, I never had time for that. I never, oh. I was like, that's not the life I want. I remember right. I was doing a lot, a lot of regional theater. And at one point I thought, I don't want that. I want to actually be able to ultimately someday have a family and I don't want, if I'm always away, I'll never be seen for the next step where I want to be. Wow. And so I did regional theater for a couple of years. And then I decided to go to Los Angeles um, to try out what they called pilot season at the time. Right. Now, it's not as defined because we right. kind of are year round. It's, it's annual for sure. Right. right. But right. There, then it was a real defined time. There were three major networks. They cast during a certain period of time, new productions. They shot. You found out what show was picked up, and that was the season for the network. And then you had summer was all reruns, right? right so that was the, the template, and, and it was clear. There was a clear definition between the difference between New York and L.A. at the time. Right. Now I'm here in New York, and it's really not that different. So of course, <laughs> the biggest thing is that the theater here is much more vibrant in terms of people really partake in theater here differently. Mm-hmm. But even that's, you know... So I've talked to a lot of actors who cut their chops, as they say, in theater and then went to L.A. to audition. And in some respects, that experience can be great. In other ways, it does, it's not transferable, right? So what did you find, like, in terms of multicam versus live action, you know, like a, like a, a drama versus a, a comedy multicam format? Were you able to go back and forth between those types of shows or did you find yourself I, being seen yeah. for one particular type of show? Well, when I was younger, I wasn't so much. I was more streety. I think they saw me as more streety when I was younger. I uh, I didn't do multicam. I've okay. always been a, a single camera, pretty much actor. Even my comedy is not, I'm not a slapstick. You know, comedy <laughs> was very different even then, right? What we right. used to see versus now. So I'm much more, the genre of comedy now is much more appropriate to my style of work. I, I'm. It fits me better. Right. Um, but uh, I don't. I don't think I ever. It's funny. I. I think that when you do the work, you do the work, and it, it's mm-hmm. not. It's not so difficult to know. You know, you see where the camera is. You. You know, your relationships can be the most important thing. Their job is to follow me. In a sense, I don't really perform for the camera, hmm. and so. Um, so I didn't have that kind of fear, and I love the intimacy of television. So I've done film, but. You know, I like TV before other before TV was like hip. So there was a whole thing. <laughs> right. I mean, really, you did if you you did theater. In New York at, actors do everything, everything and anything. They'll do background, they'll do soap operas, they'll do commercials, they'll do whatever they need to do in order to make at the end of the year the living of that they need. To and, and you right. can tell every playbill. Every actor in that production has been on Law and Order at least ten times. Exactly, so that was the gift. Law and Order. There are some franchises that actually have yeah. really helped people's careers. So, absolutely, there's great shows that did that. But um, so there, anyway. But it was theater, and then people did. Uh, if you did TV, you did commercials, TV, or film, and there was no crossover really. Oh, you're a commercial actor. You don't do TV. You do TV. Right. You'll never do film. Film actors would never do TV. Oh no, absolutely not. Oh my! And they would never do a commercial. Pa no. pa pa. Only Except they, in they China. might in Japan, right? Right. <laughs> exactly. They would go either to Russia, Japan, China. So, um, but now it's you see it. It's it's not true. The crossover and the blending. What's going on? It's 
it, it's such a different industry from when I, there's, there's very little defining uh, line. There's very few defining lines now, right? We see uh, some of the biggest uh, actors who never at any time would have done television or doing series, the limited series that right. we're thinking, Glenn Close, you're thinking, Nicole, you know, yeah, yeah everybody's out there doing this work and they're doing commercials. Those commercials are here. I am surprised. I literally started to laugh because when I started, it was like, oh, Gabrielle, if you want to be an actor and you want to be taken seriously, you can't do whatever. And I had to do whatever I could do to make a living. So that didn't work for me. I said, no, I'm going to do commercials. I have to. And then when I got a TV show, I got it. You know, I did theater and when I do TV, I did TV. And, you know, you have to. I had to push through all that. I had to take care of myself. So, but now it's a very interesting time in a different way for performers. The availability, there's more work now than ever before. And it's, and it's exciting. Television is more exciting because it's shot in a way that was reminiscent of, you know, what we loved in films. The quality is not, it's just well, you so have you have filmmakers working in TV because it's so yes. hard to make movies. So that's why we're seeing cinematic TV because well, you have <laughs> Steve. Well, McQueen also the screens are just becoming one, right? Our screens, right. we're not defined. Our technology has actually opened up the universe to being where we're just looking for a screen to be able to display whatever the work is. Right. It used to be you had to be at home for the TV. You had to be in the theater for the theaters. And there was just there was no crossover. But now it's just one blurred universe much to the chagrin of a lot of old school filmmakers who wish this weren't the case (laughs) right so you you talked about the three network model of pilot season back in the day of course abc cbs nbc now of course in the late 80s early 90s we saw the ushering in of a more brash network with with the simpsons and married with children and of course 90210 so tell me how you first of all found out about the show how did you get the audition and what were your feelings at the time about what this show was? Were you sort of just thinking, oh, this is like a teen soap. We're not really sure what the tone is. Or did you have a firm sense of Darren's vision at even just when you were auditioning? First of all, it was a job. Right. And I was just auditioning. I, so I lived in New York at the time. And I uh, had gone to stay with a friend during pilot season. Okay. Um, I shared her bed. I mean, I had no money. So I slept in her bed. I had a box by the bed. <laughs> Very little money. There were no cell phones. So in the morning, I would wake up early because of the time difference in New York. My manager was here. I would go across the street to the gas station. And then I would call my manager, see if I had auditions during that day. Right. And then I would write it all down. And then I would just get in my little rental car, you know, and I would go to all the different auditions. And um, 90210 was... It was just one of several shows. I was a, it was a very uh, rich time for me at that time. It was a breakout moment for me. I had, was offered that show, and there was another show that was shooting here in New York, and I was offered, uh, you know, Lincoln Center, Six Degrees of Separation, and wow. I was offered something at the, uh, at the Pasadena Playhouse. I literally had, like, everything happened at once, and I had to make a decision. That's how it always happens after all yeah. that work. And then it all comes to famine, right? Right. And so um, anyway, I had auditioned this one show that was going on in New York was Dr. Ruth Westheimer had a, mm-hmm. a it was a, it was a, uh, a series, six episodes were guaranteed already, but I really hated it. In fact, I saw her years later and I said, oh, I almost did your show. She said, good for you. not doing it. <laughs> Wait, it was a, it was a fictionalized 
version of her life. Yeah, yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> it was just terrible. But my I want to say that sounds like a good idea, but I have a feeling it was probably not. A oh, good it was idea. just so terrible. I all I can remember is auditioning and them loving me and me crying because my manager was like, "You should do this, Gabrielle. It's in New York. It's guaranteed. L.A. There's no way to know." And I'm like. I can't do it. My, I will be selling my soul. I'll be lost. I just oh. couldn't do it. So then I was offered at the same time, these other projects. And when I was offered 90210, what I did love was um, I loved the relationships between the characters. I, I was up for the role of Brenda originally. Yes. And then um, they brought me up for, so I actually went to network for both Brenda and for uh, Andrea and um and I just, I, I, I loved the work for those two characters. You know, Brenda uh, was a twin. So I, I was said, just about to say, yes, crossover. So I came in with my picture. I said, that's Aww, my that's twin. Cute. And then, you know, when you're young. And sure. then when, um, for Andrea, whose name was Andrea, um, I had worked for somebody in New York earlier on who was named Andrea, big casting director. And um, I called her Andrea the first day because I was helping, I was working in her office. She said, you ever do that again, you'll never work for me. It's Andrea. So I thought that was so appropriate when I auditioned for um, the role of uh, Andrea. I actually changed it in the... So that was your, that was your choice. That was. And the person who was named after who is actually Andrea King. She used hmm. to work for uh, uh, The Hollywood Reporter, I think. Oh, but wow. uh, she's a writer. She's very good friends with Darren. She's known Darren for years. She was very upset because I changed the name. <laughs> I thought because he did that for her, right? And um, right. it really was, I felt it was a really interesting character choice, right? That I agree. Yeah, so that was, um, and it was, I don't, but there was no way when I auditioned for it, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who auditioned and they, and my character, they had no idea. They had, you know, Aaron wanted to be um, more diverse or to appear to be more diverse. Mm -hmm. He was, you know, and so my character, they had all different. uh, I mean, when I say hundreds of people, I was there when I saw they had African-American and Asian and I'm Jewish. That became, right. They didn't even really know I was really Jewish, I think. But anyway, that became something that was okay for me to somehow they, that was it. Well, I think it worked for her because even though, of course, there are many Jewish people in Beverly Hills and in California, she was distinct in her group. And she was sort of always the outlier and the hard worker who lived with her grandma and they had that family history. So she was different from that core group, right? Yes. And was was anyone else cast at that point when you when you auditioned or was that happening at the same time? It was all happening at the same time. I think that Brian Austin Green had, he was cast before anybody oh, as really? I remember that. And he was been on Knott's Landing or Dynasty yeah, or some show right. like that, right? One of those. One of those. And, <laughs> uh, and Aaron was always good about bringing people back that he was a, that faithful producer. Sure. If you worked for him, he always brought you back again and sure. again. But Brian was in that, at that time, uh, clearly, uh, Shannon wasn't cast because she had read for Brenda. Right. right. Um, and uh, I, I just, I think Brian was the one and I think everybody else was just, okay. just being found. So we all came in. The person who came in later afterwards was uh, Luke. Okay. Luke was not a part of the first, uh, the pilot. He, he came in later and 
it was just a little while later. And I remembered Luke because um, I knew him in New York. I had met him. Oh, you did. Okay. And so uh, when we were at Karen and Chuck Rosen's house doing the read through for the next whatever episode it was, there was Luke and he came in and I, and he said, man, he said, I'm like so freaked out because they said, you know, it's going to, they're going to decide whether I get to keep this role or not. And, you know, it's, they won't give me a contract on it right now. And he was afraid he was going to lose it. Cut to, become, you know what I mean? But sure. he, was, he was very nervous in the beginning. He didn't know how it was going to be. Well, it's so funny, you know, as a young person watching the show, you have no idea what has been go- going on in all these actors' lives. You just think that they just magically appeared on set one day and this perfect chemistry and everyone was struggling in their own ways when they got cast, right? True. It's I mean, absolutely it's, true. And of course, you were a few years older than the rest of your cast members. Just a few. Like just a decade. A few. <laughs> I was trying to be gentle, but you were like 29, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. And, and I believe you were already married at this point. Uh, no. Well, you when I started 90210, um, I, after the pilot is when I started dating uh, okay. Charles. And okay. uh, that's my husband. For yes. No, lovely man. Husband, <laughs> lovely. We've been together now almost 31, 32 years. But um, I know it is amazing. <laughs> but, uh, and I'm very grateful. I really love him. But um, when I met him, I met him before 90210. Oh, he was okay. my financial uh, advisor. Ah, even though I had no good. money. <laughs> He advised you to make more money. That was his advice. Right. (laughs) But he was a nice guy. And I, you know, and um, then I did the pilot. I was still living in New York because I had gone out to do the pilot. Right. I booked it out there. I came back here. And um, and then when it was picked up um, at Charlie and I had been dating and I I moved to L.A. And then I would come back and forth. We would travel back and forth for over a year, um, once or twice a month. It must have been difficult. It was very hard, but I was also working hard. So it was good to have a little private time and it was good to be together. It was always exciting. Right. But after a year, I went to him and I said, I just want you to know um, I won't be moving back to New York, whether this show makes it or not. I decided I'm going to stay in L.A. and um, I'd like to explore our relationship. I'd like you to move out, but it's not a an offer for marriage because I don't know how that'll be, but I know I won't be here anymore. And if we're not going to, if you're not willing to do that as much as I care for you, I have to, we have to break up then because I'm, I'm not going to be in pain like that. You know I mean? I, we, right. I need to know there's something next. And he was quiet for like three hours. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I was like, oh. man, I really just, that oh. wasn't good. He but was then, overwhelmed. I'm sure. Yes, he was. And then he said, okay. And wow. he moved out and it, that was always great. We always, it's been a great, great time together. You both made the right decision in the end. We did. We did. <laughs> so very how, did, how difficult was it to be in your real life as Gabrielle living this very adult life? Mm-hmm. And then you get to set and then suddenly you're 17. And then some of your cast members are that age. Obviously, yeah. Shannon was on the younger side, Jenny. and Lori. Right. Lori and Brian were the youngest. Right. Of course. Uh, that was really hard for me. First of all, um, I'm not image strong in terms of I've never been the, you know, the person I didn't wear makeup until I started doing the show. Like I really wasn't uh, I didn't I just didn't. It wasn't my wasn't you wasn't me. And so I didn't know how to do that. These, you know, these young women were much more aware of, you know, how to 
that Hollywood thing. I wasn't from that, right? New York, you hit the pavement, you do. It was just a different kind of vibe. And I, and they were out, you know, partying. They were doing all the stuff that, you know, young. And I was in a relationship. Like I was, they were out there, you know, it was just different. We were in different headspaces. Charlie and I are talking about starting a family and they're just trying to figure out how to finish school. I mean, it was a different thing. And, and because I was pretending to be younger, um, it was sometimes difficult for me because that it was just, it was hard to be, I don't know. It was living a kind of double identity on stage. I, I mean, said I loved doing the work and I, didn't often, I didn't think about the age until I had to do like photos. You know, it was a really big thing for me. I, now I have to like look really young. I had my first baby when I was on the show and yeah. And I was, you know, as I was breastfeeding. So I, you know, I just had the baby and we had to do our cast shot for the new season. And I remember crying to the makeup artist saying, you know, I just gave birth and I, I can't stand next to them. They're so, you know, it was just like, it it was, I was in a different That was very hard. It was. And then it was, um, I think that I really, because I really love them all, um, but we were in different places in our lives, you know? So sometimes I felt like, I felt like Andrea a little bit out of the. Well, that's it. Hearing you say that it's, it informs the character so much because she never felt included. Even throughout her whole run, she always felt separate. And so maybe all of this helped, helped you sell her so well. (laughs) But it was, um, I loved, you know, it was a, I knew at the time, I remember when I got the job and I had gone to network mm-hmm. and I had done both roles. I changed my clothes for each one when I went in and I had a friend who was up for Brandon, who was with my manager. And we went back to the office and the phone rang and um, my manager picked up and she said, uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, she did. Oh, okay. All right. Well, thank you. She got off and she said to the young man, you know, you did, it didn't happen. And Gabrielle they want you for Andrea. And I remember like not wanting to be like so excited in front of him. Sure. That was nice of you. And me literally getting on my knees and just crying and thinking, calling my mom and saying, I think my life has just changed. And I, and I really sense like this major shift taking place in my life in that moment because Aaron's spelling and I don't know, it was just, uh, I knew that and it, it was beyond anything I could ever imagine. It really has shaped and been a gift in my life. If I say a million times over in so many ways. Yeah. It's a great foundation for what was uh, to come. So I'm, a, so I'm always curious to ask people when they are part of a zeitgeist show, at what point did you know this was a giant piece of pop culture? Was Cause I remember, I remember watching the premiere. I think it was actually, was it an August premiere? I feel like it was in the summer. It was in the summer. And that's what, and getting back to your rerun (laughs) comment earlier, that's what made it so special because I think we were also desperate for something new to watch. And And that's what made it, right. Right. That's exactly why. So if it had been on another network and done the traditional airing, it never would have made it. But Fox did, this was the first breakout where they decided we're going to air a new show during the summer. And so smart. It was brilliant. Because what happened was we were able, everybody was out of school. They it brought them in. By the right. time school started, we were established. Right. So and smart. it was amazing. So in the beginning, I, I swear, I saw the pilot. I was back in New York. I saw the pilot and I turned off the TV. I walked out and I said, I better find uh, 
a bartending job or something when I go to LA <laughs> because this show is terrible. Really? You didn't like it. You didn't like oh, the pilot. I hated the pilot. No I way. Wow. Terrible. It's a good it's actually a really good pilot. I thought I was appalled. I was so <laughs> appalled. And I um and I went into what happened was we weren't doing really great initially. But because of the summer, uh, it started to speed up. We were working every day. So we didn't realize we were like a family. We were always together. Right. It was You're very, very isolated for a long time. During very. And then it started happening was we couldn't go out publicly. We started having these experiences of being followed and we started um, having, you know, couldn't go to the mall. But there was a point where we couldn't go out publicly at all. The show went from nothing to it became this like a phenomenon. You know, it was the first show really that was dealing with the real issues of young people. It wasn't... Right. Um, pretending that everybody lives in milk and cookie life. It was, um, it was complicated. It was um, dealing with the subjects that nobody was talking about. Young people want to be seen and heard. Right. And there was, there was no, there was no avenue for that uh, prior to the show. And the show was like the opening of a, of a Pandora's box in some ways. It just became this, uh, thing of possibilities and it was so we saw that the escalation take place also the show was not just airing here but throughout Europe and so um, for a lot of people it became the symbol of you know what Hollywood or the American life was like and it's you know we were in over 100 countries and so that was we were getting a lot of uh a lot of swirl around there. And then it was here in the United States. There was a lot of swirl going on. It was a really, it was mind blowing, you know? <laughs> and and tell me about, you talk about not being able to go out in public. That must've been exciting at first, but also probably got old very quickly. It was, was actually, that? it was devastating. And each person actually took it to heart differently. So um, I became more recluse. I'm not, you know, I don't, even now when I go out in public, I'm, I'm very, I'm a, you know me, but yes, wrong. But if right. I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a more of an observer in the beginning. I'm kind of quiet, and then I come out. Um, and the cast does that a little bit too. But there were when they were younger, some of them just loved it. Like they would be, sure. you know, if we were like, you know, in a limo or something, they'd be outside of the roof and they'd be yelling. And they they were young, and they were just, and I'd be like, oh no 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 no. <laughs> um, but then it became hard, you know, when we were being followed, or there was a lot of. Um, a lot of we had to have security. There was a, where where it became it became something that was so big that we had like death threats mm-hmm. and um, there was a bomb uh, that was found on our set and they brought in the oh. they brought in all the dogs to go and you know when they it was a security person who found it but it turned out it was a security person who planted it because they wanted it was a so but it was a bomb and so when they had the sniffing dogs coming in and they had all the police and all the, you know, they were doing the investigations. We were all assigned security from that day forward. We had our own personal security. What season was that? Was that a few seasons in at that point? um, That was, it must've been, maybe it was the third season. I always feel like season three is where everything becomes, the expectations are very immense to maintain that excellence. But then at that point, the actors are so embedded in, in the culture and that's where it starts to probably get a little scary in terms of, am I ever going to have my life back? Right. Well, it was, I, I mean, this was kind of the development of our life. Right. So even though I was, you know, older than everybody, I was still also in the discovery of my life. So, um, 
I, I don't know if it's having a life back. It was, it was feeling trapped, mm. though. It was feeling that, I mean, that I couldn't go out. Uh, I, I never went alone. So it was either if I was working, no matter where I worked, there was always a security person with me. And when I wasn't working, I wouldn't go even to the mall by myself. I either had to have, my husband was, you know, Charlie was always great. He's always been there to help, you know, maneuver around things. And um, I just needed that support because it was, or we'd have to go, if we went places, we'd have to let them know before we came that we were arriving. Would they have some kind of security for us if there was an issue? So, and I know that people go like, boohoo, you know, life, you're so well, lucky. It's, it's safety. It, it's really just about safety. Right. It it's really not is. you being a diva. That's not what no. This is and about. having the the I have to say, having the bomb scare was a really big turning wow. point. It was, um, and that idea that they followed us everywhere. Our security, we were never alone, and that was hard. That was like, give me a little space, you know. <laughs> right. And then also, but don't leave leave me too much because I'm afraid. Like, you know, not knowing. That's really hard. And then also just trying to maintain your career and staying focused on doing your job with all of this worrying on, you know, either side of your head. Well, I think that, yeah, I think that the idea that it became feeling a little bit dangerous was hard. And I, and I think that taking of the privacy was really emotionally, really uh, played on people's emotions deeply. So everybody responded differently. Some people were out there more. Some people were, I mean, there was a lot of personal, uh, I think, pain that went with it. And it was hard to articulate it. You know, at that time, also the studios love, or Fox at that time, loved keeping us all separate from each other. Right. So what they were doing is we worked together, but they would whisper into each one of our ears something different. And we were not in a place where we knew that, you know what, we should be communicating with each other. We shouldn't, we're being played in a way. Right. You, you needed to be a more unified front as opposed right. to being manipulated. But we didn't know. We were young. You know, like it was different. Our managements and our agents, they were all kind of playing into that. When we came back to do the remake, we had a major conversation about what that had been like at that time and the trauma. Because there was a lot of trauma that we had not resolved. And we said, let us be in this new year, this new time, different. And we were. And that was really... I really felt the closing of a circle for me. And it was uh, it was transformative to be able to do that as well because it was really able to really shut down and, and let go of some of the things that we just never talked about before. I love that. And I do want to talk more about the reboot in a little bit. But it's interesting to think about how much celebrities and actors and anyone in the public space is in charge of their own messaging now via Instagram, much to the chagrin of their publicists, by the way. Um, (laughs) who wish that they weren't so much in charge. But now all these actors, they can email each other, they can text each other, they can message using social media, they can say, this is what's going on in the set of our show. So they they have so much more control than you guys had. And it's it's sad to think of of the fact that you felt that way back then. You know what? I think it's just a learning curve. And when you say, you know, people have more control now, they do and they don't. You know, it's, I don't, I think the difference is that people are much more, uh, there's much more permission, right? There's more, and it, maybe not from the employers as much as it is from uh, society as a whole to right. say, it's okay to speak up. You you don't have to be in that. You, nobody, no worker, forget it, just, you know, actors. There's a voice that's being allowed to be released now that just didn't even, 
it was it, when I was working and starting the business, you either do it, you suck it up and you do it. And if not, use someone else. That right. was it. Because there are a hundred people waiting to take your job. Right? Thousands, thousands and thousands. And you were reminded of that every day. Right. Which isn't operating in that space of fear can be a good motivator, but it can also be destructive. I yes, think it's very oppressive in itself too. Sure. Yeah. So you left the show in 1995. And tell me how much of that was your decision or just a natural progression of the character. It was actually what happened was mine. I had, it was Rupert Murdoch. Uh, I had been at a party at Fox and people, I love talk shows at that time. Phil Donahue was really big. I yes. love, I love. He's the best. The best. <laughs> the best. Um, and uh, I just loved, loved his work. And I remember being at a party saying, I would love to do a talk show. I would just really love to do that. Somebody must have said something to Rupert because he mm. called me in. Um, and talked to me that at his office with all his like TVs going is where, you know, and he this, said, is a, this is a surreal scenario to imagine. right, right now. <laughs> And he's like, Gabrielle, would you like to do a talk show? And I was like, well, somebody definitely said something. Clearly him. he has and eyes I, and ears all over the place everywhere. And I said, as a matter of fact, I'd like to. And he said, cause I think that would be great for you. I said, but I think it's a bad idea to do it right now. I said to him, I think this was a year before I left. I said, you're, Maybe it was even the third year because I ended up doing specials later. But um, I said, you're saying that now because the show is so successful. But I think that there's I want to still ride this train. I'm not quite ready to leave it. Um, There may be a time when I am. But I I think that, you know, I really I don't want to do it yet. And then cut to I was approached by several other networks to do uh, a show. And I said, I don't want to do that. And then I said, at that time, it was a smaller company came to me and I said, I would do special, a special. I'd be interested in doing that. Hmm. Um, and uh, that's when I did uh, a, a project that I, it's called Face the Hate. And, I remember. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that one was a, that was the first time that I had developed a project. It was right after the riots in right. L.A. with Rodney King. And I said, I really feel that there's... Um, there's a thing called hateism. I don't care, you know, they, what's that, Gabrielle? And I said, I really wanted to, and everybody wanted me to use like salacious stuff. I didn't want to do salacious, right? I didn't want to, I didn't need to be Springer. I didn't want to, I said, I really don't want to do that. But I said, I would do something that was meaningful. And I said, I think that we all have an intolerance. I don't care how liberal and open we think we are, an Everyone. intolerance for some, for things that are not familiar to us. And I think that, you know, this has really been amplified by what's gone on in the Rodney King case and this lack of understanding. And I want to do something on hateism. And Mm -hmm. so um, then we developed this special that I did. And and then other specials came after that. But um, it was after, it was so coming into uh, 95, um, I said it's. I, I had had my first child, you know, Kelsey. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I felt really out of the loop with the cast. Mm-hmm. I felt they didn't. Sure. Aaron was very supportive. I'd gone to him about getting pregnant, but they after that didn't know how to write me. They just didn't know. She's, you know, it was still. And this is when years. this is when Andre was in college at right. this point, I, and, I, college, and I remember right. And people were very very upset that I got pregnant. Like we got <laughs> letters from the New York. People were writing all over. That's disgusting. She's oh. supposed to be intelligent. And so I wrote um, an, mm-hmm. um, it, uh, not an op-ed, but some, in, the, in the New York Times, I wrote um, a comment uh, or a letter. And I said, you know, 
intelligence uh, is not uh, a definer for people making mistakes. We make mistakes, right? People make mistakes and we all have things that happen. And I think the reality of the fact that we have to live with the decisions we make, sometimes that we think our mistakes can become blessings, but we'll never know that. This was a choice, something that happened with Andrea. And I said, and this is a real choice that people have to make. And Aaron was very supportive of that. I mean, they all stood up for me on it. But um, I think afterwards, it just became difficult to write. And I felt really like I had a baby now, they were still young, and they were, you know, the cast was, and I felt like it was a good place to leave at the height of, right. you know, I had been offered, I went back to Rupert, and I said, I, you know, want to talk to you about that talk show, hmm. and um, and then I ended up going to do that, and it was hard to give up the money, to be honest with you, it was, oh, I the, bet, sure, the show was very yeah. successful, and it was a regular paycheck and it was security. It was clear the show was going to go on longer. And, um, but I felt it was a real, you know, it was a moment of introspection for me. What, what do I want? And sometimes you can't make money your God and you can't make power your God. You have to, you know, whatever that is. And, um, and I left and I did my talk show and the show lasted for a year and then it went away and then I was lost, you know? So, so, and I'm sure that was very disappointing too, after coming from such a successful series before, but tell me how you went into crafting this show. You, you cite Phil Donahue as sort of an inspiration for tone because Phil was, boy, was he talking about stuff that nobody was talking about. Right. But in, in that non Springer way, Right. He was trying to bring understanding and compassion to difficult right. subjects, whereas Springer was exploiting people and right. I think continues to and his, has his brand. What, what were you <laughs> trying was, to do that was I've different been, from Oprah was already, obviously already had her show. Yes, what else? She, was, she actually started doing stuff that we did in our show. So we decided to have an interactive show and our show was, um, we did live surgeries. We brought people on and we, went and talked about the experience, whether it was plastic surgery, whatever it was. And then we would do live interactive watching procedures take place and talking to the people who are in the midst of getting ready for it. We had uh, the Million Man March. We went and brought in, um, you know, people uh, who had been a part of the initial uh, uh, Panthers, the Black Panthers. And there was, I mean, we really did some really, interesting shows the shows though that really do well are the makeover shows there's certain shows that just do well and other ones not so much but um we did we were the first ones to do that later on oprah started doing her big live you know screens talking to people but that came out of when we started doing that and um cool it was cool and it was it was but it was hard i didn't have enough uh though i loved the talk shows yeah, and Phil Donahue, I don't think that I understood. We were trying to create something, but we didn't, I didn't know how to like tie the knot on it. I just, I kept struggling to find it. And I, sure. it was but You hard. also have to rely on, and here you are an actor who's been studying acting for how many years at this point, there's no natural way to then suddenly flip a switch and you're great at this other thing. I mean, Diane Sawyer, Katie Kirk, Oprah, they all have tons of producers helping them craft this vision. Right. And they've been doing that for a long time. But there's other actors who did well. It was just our talk show wasn't there. It was a different kind of talk show. I wanted something with more what I considered to be very substantive at that time. People, I wanted to talk about politics and I wanted to talk about 
you know, people were looking at me though as entertainment. I was from 90210. Oh my God, we're going to watch her. So then I would come up with something that maybe was, do we really want to hear about that? So it was a very uh, push me, pull you kind of, and I had a, I had a great Belma Johnson was my, um, I want to say he co-hosted with me. He was, uh, he was the man on the street. So he mm-hmm. and I would do the live interactive. So Belma, tell me what's going on there. How has that been? What do you want to say? And he was wonderful. Such a beautiful, beautiful human being. Um, but it was a great journey. At the end of the year, when we had gone, we had hit over 100 shows because uh, we were doing like... yeah. And this was syndicated in, in markets all over the US. Yeah. Okay. Um, but when it uh, was done and they said, they called and they said, Gabrielle, we're not going to keep going. And I was like, oh, all right, what am I going to do now? I mean, you know, right. I was like, well, and how did you feel in that moment? Did you think, okay, I guess I'm back to auditioning. You know, what, what was yeah. your first move after that in terms of strategizing? I just started to audition. And I, and then I started doing a lot, a lot of television. A lot was going on in Canada. I was, you know, a lot of what they were, the movies of the weeks that were transforming right. into a different kind of movie of the week. So there's a real market for that. Sure. For uh, particularly for women, there was right. at that time. The lifetime, the lifetime model really right. had had grown at that point. Right, and that's where I was on every. I was doing all the lifetime stuff, and it was <laughs> it was great. And then I got injured. Yes, I was going to ask about that, and not to revisit, obviously, a very difficult thing. But tell me about that injury briefly, but then also the recovery and how that led you in other directions artistically. God, my whole life. Uh, so <laughs> I, I had an uh, interesting life. So there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> I, um, so I was in Canada at the time shooting uh, a movie uh, for television and I was um, the lead and uh, they brought in somebody as a day player for, uh, it was just one day. It was, uh, but he was, uh, the story took place where he comes into my house in the middle of the night and I come downstairs, I hear something. And then he uh, comes from behind me with a bat and he grabs me, drags me down the stairs. He's looking for something. He's taking me down to get it. And we do this repetitive um, move over and over. He's quite tall. In fact, at that moment I had said, did you guys not look at my resume? I'm only like <laughs> five foot one. He's like six, five, six, six. Right. But he was very hyper and he kept lifting me up. Uh, by my neck. And at one point I started having incredible pain and I said, you have to stop. I said, something's wrong. I'm having incredible headaches. And they uh, gave me Advil. They said, you'll be fine. I said, I'm not feeling good. And then I wasn't able to sleep. I really like was something was wrong. And then Mm. a couple of days later, I was uh, in my dressing room and talking to my husband on the phone. And I said to him, uh, oh my God, my face is not there's, it's not moving. Like, it's so weird. And, and I had not been feeling good. Like I was feeling numb. I talked to, I actually had said something to the crew, like, is there something wrong? Cause I can't feel my, wow, my mouth. And I feel like it's kind of weird. Maybe I got bitten. I didn't understand what was taking place. Sure. And um, sorry, New York. It's okay. <laughs> and um, anyway, so then, um, but then what happened was they tried to shoot around it. They had been bringing in acupuncturists for me and they were bringing, I was in a lot of pain. They were trying to, you know, we want to try to help you, Gabrielle. And then as I became more and more deformed, it was happening on camera and they had to stop shooting. Oh my God. And they brought a doctor in. And then I started to like, it was like spasming, like convulsions. And he's like, what's going on with her? What's wrong? And they said, she's going into shock. 
And then I said, I have to go home. They wanted me to go to the hospital. I said, I don't know where I'm at. I have to be home. I can't be here. And I, I actually left all my things there. I flew home. I was very deformed. Oh, and um, I can't believe I, you had to fly like that. That must have been. Oh, I was so embarrassed. So if you're, I was so, I mean, I was like the Joker. I mean, I was like, oh. like this. And I had this thing going on and oh I, uh, I was, in, it was hard because people knew who I was and they, but you can see them like looking at me kind of like, what is wrong with her? Right. Of course. And um, they had to end up sending all my things to me. I couldn't go back. And that's when I started my treatments. And I, you know, I was uh, I, where I had been working nonstop for ever since I had, you know, my whole adult life. Right. Suddenly I wasn't able to talk. I was at UCLA at the movement disorder clinic for a couple of years. I was heavily medicated. They were seeing if I had a, a hangman fracture and I was fighting and, um, you know, I ultimately sued the company and uh, there's, it's very complicated when you work for a company to do that. So, uh, and they thought I was in that. He was, the producer was so dismissive. Like, you know, she's a nothing client, you know, person and we, it's our word against hers. And they denied ever seeing anything happen. And the director lied about the fact that it was her friend and in her house that I was getting acupuncture. She said, no, I never, I don't know what you're talking about. I was like, you guys paid for that. Like it was in your house. Like I was so blown away. Um, But it was SAG after we weren't a merged union yet, but I was a part of both of the unions and uh, they wrote on my behalf to Canada to say, this is wrong. You need to be, you know, standing by um, our performer, a member here who's been injured. And I literally could not speak. I mean, it was very, very, very painful. And um, anyway, I did this lawsuit. It took 10 years and I was flying back and forth uh, to Canada um, doing depositions, listening to them lie, just and continued on. I had a great lawyer, and then um, I won my case, and that it was amazing to be sitting in the room uh, through the final uh, mediation, and um, and when the insurance company said to me after all was said and done, we're so sorry that this happened, and we hope that will help your life. And I remember crying and crying, thinking, I get to move on now. I really, I'm going to release this now. And um, that's when I became of service in the union. Somebody had asked me to come sit in and I said yes. And I I had already started doing my service as a result because I wasn't able to work, but they had asked me to do it. And then I felt that I talked to my husband about, you know, maybe it's time for me to really pay it forward. You know, Mm. we've been really blessed with this. And um, that's how I started my service. Wow. So it's such a terrible thing that you went through. I'm so sorry. And to feel dis- and, and look at you now. You're fantastic. Okay. But to feel dismissed. And, and unfortunately, so many women are made to feel this way. And not oh, just okay. women, a lot of marginalized people. But I'm so glad you're okay, firstly. How much of that experience informed the passion that you brought to ultimately becoming president of the Guild? Because the care that you have for people is, is well-established but also feeling that sense of, of loss and isolation of feeling like no one cares about me in this. Where, where's the advocacy? I think you brought so much of that to this job. So tell me a little bit about, first of all, becoming president and then what that experience was like. Well, president was not a, uh, a position that I had even thought of. You know, I was, uh, I helped to merge the unions, which was. That's huge. 
It was, and it was, but it was very meaningful. I mean, I didn't understand why we had two unions with work now was being digitized. And so it was kind of redundant to have two unions paying two dues. Some people were barely making their, no matter how much money they were making, they still weren't making their insurance. It was a very, it seemed, I, I didn't understand it. I felt that the universe was changing and we should all be in one place. So it made, it was very logical to me that we would be merged. Sure. And I didn't understand the sensibility that came from people. I'm from, we're Hollywood actors. I mean, there was a real thing from the uh, traditional uh, or legacy SAG. There was a group of people who really made it clear we are actors and nobody else, uh, you know, why would I ever go uh, like want a broadcaster in our union? I'm never, you know, they, there was actually a, a comment about, um, I'm trying to think of the, uh, where it was, it was, uh, it's like the smallest, uh, the smallest station in the country. Um, anyway, um, why would I ever want to go and take care of those people when we have actors here? Well, I ended up going to that place actually during my time, um, before I was the president to go and be a part of the negotiations for those broadcasters. And I learned about the broadcasters and I wanted to be supportive, but, um, I never imagined being president, but I was, as I had been a part of a group that, you know, helped merge the unions. Then I became the first, when we did, the first executive vice president of uh, SAG-AFTRA. And Ken Howard was the president at the time. Yes. And I was happy to be of service. I'm a soldier. I don't actually, I never aspired to lead. Um, but during my time of service with Ken, he died. And um, it was really sad. And I, it was a really... I was in the middle of negotiations in New York at the time for commercials, and they asked me to step out, and they said, Ken has passed. Hmm. And suddenly, I was the standing president, and I was, in fact, my husband was here in New York with me, and I went up to my hotel room, and I said, I have to leave right now to go to LA. Um, Ken has died, and I need to... Um, I need to reach out to people. And so literally flew out that night and started reaching out to people around the country. We had to make sure that the union stayed stable during such an incredible loss. So the transition had to be done in a way that was very, uh, it felt seamless and, you know, supportive to, because we didn't want, it was very important for us not to lose stability and so I worked really hard to reach out around the country, to reach out to other organizations. Then I flew back to New York. I finished the negotiations. Um, then I was elected within the boardroom. So I was the standing president at that time. And then uh, in the boardroom, they, uh, they make a nomination if a president is passed or gone. And they, uh, that was very fortunate. It was a unanimous thing. And I did that. And then uh, to, you know, there were two elections after that. So five and a half years, I've been doing my presidency. And that was two years ago, I almost stopped because I was shooting at the time. And I thought, you know, it's, I believe we should pass the baton and stuff. But it was really a precarious time. And I said, I'll stay uh, a little, you know, this next time around. And um, I'm glad I did. I feel that coming through the particularly um, through the pandemic, um, stability was imperative for the well-being of um, our members and for the industry as a whole. So we needed to have, uh, you know, real unifying uh, conversations and work with not just within our organization, but the other unions and with the studio. So it was a good, it was a, I think, you know, everything happens and it's time. We're all, mm-hmm. everybody leads in the time they're meant to lead. And, um, 
And then now I'm, I'm finishing up that I finished now. Wow. That is amazing. And I don't think a lot of people understand this is an unpaid position. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. this is people not- say, I pay you a lot of money. I said, no, you really don't. Right. <laughs> no? and that's, well, that just goes to show how little people really understood. Even your own members don't understand. A lot of them don't understand what this position was. What did you find internally that were, I guess, the core reasons that there was so much misunderstanding? Was it lack of communication? Was it just so much turnover and turmoil in the business? And how did you help to sort of heal some of that? Because I know you did do a lot to streamline. You know, I help not just me. So I, I was a yes. part, I'm part of a sure big, you and the team that you worked with. Yeah, right. The whole union in its way, right? Um, what what I found internally, I think one of the things it's it's not. I actually think we have a lot of great ways that we reach out. I mean, we we do work on it. We created podcasts. We do uh, webinars. We had the President's Task Force on Education and Outreach involving the whole country. We tried to work on our Twitter, our social media, because we realized the younger generation needed to feel relevant and they are not going to read our long, long emails. Right. And we have... Other members who really depend on those emails, we have our magazines, we have a lot of ways we are always looking to communicate. But in the end, it's kind of like our country, you know, Um, and I think it's kind of a little bit like the world. But in our country, we have people who are we're so busy living our day to day lives that um, we don't really think about what's over here because, you know, you got to feed your family. You have to make sure you, you have your auditions. You have to take care of your, maybe you're taking care of not just your children, but your parents. There's, sure. We have a lot of things going on. And so even for myself, when I started in my, uh, I didn't know that when I started getting involved, I didn't know that the union was really run by the members, I didn't understand. I really thought of the union as this place that negotiated contracts. And then I worked these contracts and I didn't, I, I didn't, I, I didn't know that there was a whole group of members who were actually reaching out to do this. And, and I think that that's been a real, it's a journey. It is, we struggle with this all the time. How do we go and get our members to read this stuff? Right. We're doing videos. How do we, you know, the podcast, we're trying all the different ways to reach out. But I think that that's always going to be the journey. It's not because we're not doing it well. No, I don't, it's just, I don't, how do you get people who are struggling day in and day out to take time to do something that they're saying that's just, it's, I think it's really great. You're doing it. They'll say that to me. Gabrielle, <laughs> thank you so right. much for your service. And all I want to say is will you help because we just can't do it alone, but people have lives. And so that's always, it's like our country, you know, right. how many people just don't, they don't even know that there's, you know, midterm elections. They don't know, right that it's important to know who your judge is going to be as well as who the president of the country is going to be. And you need to know what's going on in your, you know, your state, not only on a federal level, but what's going on at, you know, local level people. It's, it's so much bigger, but our worlds are very multi-layered and I guess you join in where you do. Right. And ultimately you can't be responsible for the level engagement of engagement that members have. It's up to each person to decide how important it is. And right. All you can do is provide the information, right? That's right. We try to do it. We try to, and people have been more involved now than ever before. I've so seen a lot of amazing mobility during COVID. Oh. It seems like people have really come together. It's really they great. They came together during COVID. We had the Harvey Weinstein moment that really yes. brought an awareness and a, a vocalization that we hadn't heard, where yes. people were much more in, again, their own personal uh, 
maybe pain, but they never felt they could speak on it. But in there being able, I think people have seen over and over, if you speak out, others will join you. And I think that that's been, uh, we're seeing a shift in our culture, right? And so as we see it in the in our country, we're seeing it also in our union. Our union definitely reflects the uh, political cycles of our uh, country, I think. For sure. And also, the members of your union are not a monolith. Not everybody has the same political beliefs. Not everyone lives in California and New York. You have members all over the United States. So you're also dealing, and, and outside the U.S. So you're dealing with people who are not like us and who are not of the same mindset. So that makes it, I'm sure, more challenging. And it's interesting you bring up the Weinstein stuff. I think when a lot of those stories first started coming out, people were like, well, where was the union in this? Why wasn't the union protecting these actresses who were going through these experiences? And I was very heartened to see how present you were in those conversations, but just hearing the union say, we are always here for our members. We've always been here, but here are ways we can improve this process. Here's a secret number you can call. Here's some more privacy related information and, and resources that people may not have known existed. Right. So I was I was heartened to see how much you were involved in those conversations because part of me was thinking I think the union has always had people's backs but maybe just people didn't know how to do it and yeah, that's a lot of you've improved yeah thank you we really worked on it so look at I've been I during that moment actually was transformative for me personally as well I definitely have had experiences throughout my life that I always just took as my own one-offs, you know, and that I just, you know, look, that's just a part of the nature of the industry. And Gabrielle, you got to tough it out. I mean, there are things that happen, but I think that um, when the Harvey Weinstein moment happened, I myself didn't speak out on my own personal things, which actually brings great shame to me. I, um, I, I did, you know, Gina Davis did the uh, film. um, What is it? Um, Yes, the documentary. Um, yeah. <laughs> I totally like it. It's an amazing movie. Yes, you're in it. Anyway, so, <laughs> yeah. I can't remember. But um, this much I know. The- and um, what happened was uh, when I did it and they talked to me, I said, I just didn't realize that where I thought I was taking care of myself, I was making it okay. Would I, by not speaking out, how did I hurt other people? I didn't, and I think that really happened with the Harvey Weinstein moment. You know, um, I talked to a lot of the people who uh, did come out. And I, one of the questions for one of the really major people who came out, I said, I just have to ask you a question. Did you ever say anything to the union? Hmm. And she said, no, wow. I didn't. I told my lawyers and I told and I said, but you blame the union. And that's a really interesting thing. That I think- hurts. That probably hurts to hear that. I think that it it's to know that people are in pain and when they, it was really, for me, it was sad. What it really, it, it actually brought something, a realization to me as well, that sometimes when people are in pain, it's so hard to own that pain, right? It's so hard to say, maybe I should have done this or that, that it's, it's easier to project sometimes. And how great if you're going to go and if there's a problem, how how great, much better to say, how can we join together to make it better instead of saying it's your fault? And it was a really interesting reality for me or realization when I realized it was never reported from all these people who had been going out publicly and yet we were getting hammered. And it was a time for us to look at, that's okay because people are struggling right now. I mean, I I had to let that go because it wasn't personal, but it did tell me that people didn't didn't understand that they had, like you said, we had resources, maybe not enough. 
And we had to change those resources, expand them, and we had to make it much more publicly known how to access them because it wasn't being helped by the people who represented them. Right. It wasn't from their lawyers, to their agents, to their managers, to the producers, to the direct. Nobody was giving them that solution. It, the, a lot of this stuff happened off the sets where our contracts really live on the sets, right? Sure. That's where we right. protect our members. We're not a part of the, there's nothing that we have a legal voice in, in terms of casting. And right. some of these things happened before casting. It was, sure. Um, so we started working on laws, actually. Hmm. We helped to change laws in terms of hiring practices and the way certain, uh, when, when does somebody become an employer, uh, or what is uh, that tracks? We really worked, we've worked on it in a lot of different w- ways to try to help to end the systemic issues that are taking place. And I, th- I think that's been the most successful thing for everything that we've really approached when it comes for inclusion and, uh, and equity. We do it in a lot of different ways. Like I said, with inclusion and diversity, what are laws that we can look at and work on? What are practices that we can change? How can we look within our own house to be better? We can't expect people outside uh, in the industry and the world to be better if we're not going to also reflect it in how we do things. I mean, it's very, and and that's kind of like, I think that's what leadership is, right? It's kind of, it's not saying we're perfect. We're always fluid, right? but how do we break it down so we can be better? And it's, I wish that people were much more involved with wanting to help make it better rather than sometimes there's people who are, you know, will attack the system. I'll say, but gosh, it was, nobody was there. I think it's great that you're interested. If you can come in in a positive way, we might be able to really create something. Right. Or offer solutions in, instead of right. criticisms, right? Right. I don't mind the criticism, but if it's right. done in a way that's productive For rather sure. than accusatory, I think that we're just better off, right? Because in the end, we just, we want to make it better. All of us do. Nobody wants right. it to be bad. No, and every organization, whether it's a studio, a network, nonprofit, I mean, there isn't an organization in America that hasn't had to question its practices in the last few years. So at least you're in good company on that front. And mm-hmm. I want to make sure that the movie is actually This Changes Everything. Changes everything. The document, yes, which is a fantastic film, very hard to watch in a lot of ways, but so important. So I encourage everyone to see that. I think it's on Netflix now. So yes, and it's always actually, it's always developing. You know, they, they're, they're adding things to it. Throughout yes. time, they've changed it several times. So yes. it's, it's changing by the day, all these issues, right? <laughs> so before we run out of time, I do want to talk a little bit about the 90210 reboot in 2019 and also how that experience kind of whet your appetite for new experiences. Because it was a very strange project in the sense that you're playing an old character. It was sort of a verite reality show format, but you were still acting. <laughs> so tell me about just reconnecting with your friends. And then what are you doing now? Well, it was really great to come back together with everybody. I was surprised it happened. It was uh, like coming home, but actually we were more mature. Everybody now were parents. And right. so we were all in a very similar pay- playing field than when we had been younger. You're finally we, like, oh, you guys are caught up to me now. Yes. <laughs> and we shared a lot of experiences. Now we've been together throughout the years, also as friends. And so this time around, we were better. We communicated and we... Uh, we, it was, it was developing a project, working together, um, talking and, and creating. And it was just, it was such a different experience. That's why it was full circle for me. And it was really, when it finished though, I think it, 
would have been interesting to continue. I was happy. I felt finished. I felt I really closed that door. So you felt healed in a way that you hadn't for a long time. It was really wonderful. I left saying I am just the happiest person. It was beautiful. After that, I, you know, we came into the pandemic shortly after. Not long after that. No. And so that the pandemic was, you know, that was really painful. It was so painful to see we had members who were getting sick and dying in the beginning, um, losing everything. The industry shut down. Um, People were in food lines. It was, you know, we thought what was going to be a couple of months became, you know, over a year. I mean, it was just, and how do we go and find a way to create some stability and get the business back open in the safest way possible? Our members are the most vulnerable because, you know, they're um, the ones who can't wear PPE when they're shooting. And yet, you know, everybody was depending on our industry to, you know, you heard it from even from Washington. And I even talked to Pelosi about this afterwards and some of our, uh, you know, senators, you know, you all depended on us. You said, stay home, watch the Netflix show you didn't see, stream your favorite show, do all that, watch the news. The news informed everybody so they could know day in and day out what was going on. And those were our members as well. And so here we are, everybody's, you know, looking to the work we do to help keep them sane and to keep them hopeful and to keep them informed. And yet the people who did that work were just devastated, right? As the country was devastated, they were devastated. And we had to work on, you know, making sure that they were able to get the, uh, be a part of the, uh, the packages coming out of um, Washington to, you know, because the way we earn is different. And sure. there was so much work. We were seven days a week, seven in the morning to late at night, um, just to get the industry open. And I am really thrilled, actually, I, the first thing I worked on during the pandemic was a small film. I flew out and I felt so safe. And I was like, oh my God, these protocols that we amazing, isn't it? It was, I felt safer on set than I did in the grocery store. (laughs) And then I've I've been on set myself a few times and it's incredible. It's like surgeons. It's it's an operating room. And it was, but how freeing, right? And then I'm now I'm, uh, you know, the day that I announced that I, uh, wasn't running anymore. I got a show on HBO. That's what I'm doing right now. Uh, and um, it, it's, it's been great. I mean, I, I've been reaping the benefits of what we negotiated. You know, you get, um, if you're uh, having to get tested on days you're not working, there's pay for that. There was, wow. um, you know, I, I couldn't believe I was getting paid for that. I mean, if there's things that we put into place, I was like, "Oh, that's so great! I can't believe I'm getting that." You know, so I I think but, that what, year, an, but what an amazing feeling to know that you're the beneficiary of your own hard work. Well, <laughs> that I, I actually was amazing. I was very happy to be able to experience it right. on many levels, right? But what I was really really proud of, and I say this for you know for all our members who really really contributed and stood by to really help us do this and use their voices to share with us their concerns and their interests. They helped to form and shape what has allowed this industry to open up and remain open. And I hope they feel proud. I I hope they can feel and see how they make a difference because it has been tremendous. And, um, and I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen this next year with the weather and, Will the you know will there be another variant? I don't know, but I think that we have a good structure in place. 
I agree. And I've done some live events recently. I've seen the care that people are taking from guests and audiences to actors themselves. We are all committed to staying busy and staying working. And it's thanks largely to you. So thank you very much. Nice to all of us, but thank you. And thank you for sharing your amazing story. I feel like we could be talking all day long, but you have work to do. You're a working actor. So I just want to say thank you on behalf of everyone. And thanks to everyone who's been watching. And, and I hope they learned a lot. Thank you for listening to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation. And reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAG-AFTRA-FOUND. We'd love to hear from you.